0: جزاكم الله خيرا والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته
1: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله الحمد لله وكفى وسلاما على عباده الذين اصطفى خصوصا على سيد وخاتم الانبياء وعلى اله لسكياء واصحابه لسكياء اما بعد Today we start a new chapter the author Titles this chapter, the teaching methodology of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, The different methods that were adopted by Rasulullah sallallahu while teaching. One thing he points out in the opening paragraphs is that the overall lesson is that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was a very convincing, influential teacher. And to accomplish this, Rasulullah ﷺ not only relied on one specific method, rather he cycled through different approaches depending on what was, trying, what was being accomplished and who Rasulullah ﷺ was speaking to in that moment. He lists out multiple tools and approaches. And the truth is, for those of you who have studied hadith before, for each of these statements, there is a riwayah, a narration that is subtly being referenced. And your mind will click, oh, I remember that narration. Oh, this actually happened here or that happened there. So he gathers so many um, narrations and moments from Sirah, the Prophet biography together while putting this beautiful paragraph together.
2: Go ahead. Alhamdulillah Allah, the teaching methods of Rasulullah sallallahu الله عليه Rasulullah sallallahu الله عليه used the most beautiful and best teaching methods. These had the greatest effect on the mind and heart of the, of, his, of his listener and were always appropriate to the latter's level of understanding and intelligence. Moreover, his utterances were always lucid. Whoever studies and reads the books of Sunnah in depth will see that Rasulullah So when Nabi
1: would speak. يَخْتَارُ فِي تَعْلِيمِهِ مِنَ الْأَسَالِيبِ أَحْسَنَهَا وَأَفْضَلَهَا He used the best approach and the most superior method when teaching. And that approach was adopted that would cause the message to reach the heart of the one that was being addressed. How does this message reach that person's heart? Allowing them to Intellectually understand what was being said. Go ahead.
2: Whoever studies and reads the books of Sunnah in depth will see that Rasulullah ﷺ resorted to various styles of teaching when speaking to his Sahaba. At times, he ﷺ would speak as though he was asking the question. At times, he ﷺ would answer the question. At times, he, ﷺ would, answer At times he ﷺ would answer the questioner according to the level of his question. At times, he Sallallahu would answer more than what a person had asked. At times, he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would give an example to convey his meaning. At times, he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would add an oath in Allah's name to his speech. At times, he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would divert the questioner from his question because of because of his hidden wisdom in the matter. At times, he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would teach by writing, drawing, or providing
1: assimilations. طَرَطًا تَشْبِيهِ اَوَا التَّصْرِيحِ Sometimes Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when you tashbih, assimilation to something, a mythal, or giving an example that this is like that. أَوَا tasrih, And other times Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would give the uh, message or convey his point with clear words. Just direct. Yes.
2: When necessary, He Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would be explicit. At Other times He Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would teach by illusion or intuition. Sometimes Rasulullah وسلم, would present a doubt in order to provide an answer to it. At times, he وسلم, would resort to joking and debate in order to get his message across. He وسلم, would, also, would, would also gently introduce a topic or use Joking is
1: also a good way to teach. Sometimes humor plays a great role. In particular, if you're covering something very technical, the student can easily become intimidated. So a good way to do that is to maybe start the lesson off with an example that has some humor to it. So they understand the concept, yet also have a break from the tension that they're carrying in that class. So muda'aba, muhajah. Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would also use um, uh, debate. You, you present two sides to an argument. It also uh, opens up the matter to the student. Yes. Nabi
2: Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would also generally introduce a topic or use comparison as a teaching aid, at times he would refer to the underlying reasons in order to provide an answer to a matter, at times he would ask his Sahaba عنه, by questioning them on matters whose answers he وسلم, already knew, at times he would ask them in order to leave- Their response to- usually when Nabi would ask a question was what?
1: Allahu wa Rasuluhu A'lam, that Allah and His Messenger know better, this was their humbleness Unlike in our case, we quickly jump to giving answers to issues that we have no business answering. And in many cases, we are giving answers to issues that our opinion is not even solicited in. And for more reference, please check Facebook, all of it. Go ahead. At times, he would ask them in order to lead The them thing to- is that in our, in our day and age, there's no waqar or izza for ilm. This deen means nothing. It has no value. So, say whatever you want, there can't be any accountability. That's the assumption. When in reality, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that what greater crime is there? What greater crime is there than for someone to attribute a false and and to make an accusation to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That you attribute to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which you have no knowledge of. How could a person say something is ja'iz or not ja'iz or even say that my opinion on a matter is this without having any true grounding, without having done any studying or reading? And I'm not talking about going online and doing a quick Google search. That's a disrespect to the deen, that you study it, that you read it from beginning to end. You study it with scholars. You understand what the matlab bin murad of the deen is. You understand the ahkam Right, the causes behind rulings changing in matters. Someone who studies Islamic law, the beautiful thing is the more you study Islamic jurisprudence, if you study it properly with teachers, you end up regretting a lot of your life. That What was I thinking in my, before doing this? What was I, what was I even thinking? That, how did I have that courage to speak here? Ultimately in the deen, we are dealing with revelation. And wahi is a very serious matter. Therefore, the fuqaha of the past, they were careful when passing rulings. They say regarding Imam Al-Hanifah that he would have a majlis al-ifta. His rulings were not just his own individual opinions, rather an issue would be presented, a group of specialists from various backgrounds would be assembled in one gathering. Imam al would present the issue, It would then be discussed among the jurists that were sitting there. Someone is a master in hadith, another person is a master in language. Someone understands, has a deeper understanding of Tafsir. And at the end of it, a verdict would be passed. There would be an agreement. Taqbir would be said. It would then be noted down. There was a process to it. There There was seriousness that they took these matters very seriously. That how can a person speak on the matters of the deen without having knowledge? So Rasulullah would ask the Sahaba questions. And it was common for the companions to say, Allahu wa Rasulhu alam. And the people saying this most of the time, by the way, if you're wondering, maybe, astaghfirullah, it was like, you know, the Sahaba who didn't have knowledge. Usually it was Abu Bakr and umar radiyallahu anha, Ali Uthman radiyallahu anha, Sa'ad, Talha, Zubair, you know, Mu'adh ibn Jabal radiyallahu who were saying these things. It was an adab. That whatever I have to say, most likely won't have the wisdom that you will have a messenger of Allah. So instead of me giving the answer, I'll stay silent. A messenger of Allah, you nourish our hearts. You speak to us. Your words have more value than ours do. It's when the person who hasn't studied the deen begins to overvalue the weight in their words that they find it easy to speak because they believe their words are an inspiration and wisdom and guidance for others they've misjudged and miscalculated what their words carry someone says two nice words about you and, oh wow that was amazing and then you begin to um, feed off of this delusion it's a very scary place to be May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect us. Imam Malik says that I did not pass fatwa while in Medina Munawwara until the great scholars of Medina had approved that you are now in a place that you can go and speak on the deen. And um, the, uh, uh, go ahead continue. There are many examples of this, of the ulama being careful when passing verdicts of the deen and how they would travel to consult one another. There are many that are examples that are in my mind but we'll skip them for now. Allah wills. maybe another day we will cover the subject. Go ahead.
2: At times he وسلم, would ask them in order to lead them to the point where they would arrive at the answer. At times he would provide some information to them before they could ask any question. At times he would dedicate some of his lesson to women and teach them whatever they needed to know. He وسلم, took into account the condition of the children and youth who were present and would come down to their level and teach them what was appropriate to their level of understanding. In addition to these, there are various other teaching methods used by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So
1: right here we see that he also points out that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was mindful to the audience he was speaking to. That at times Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would Have a gathering only for women, teaching them matters that they needed. And sometimes Rasulullah took into consideration while teaching that the audience that was before him were younger folks, therefore, coming down to that level and allowing them to benefit from. What he was saying. Go ahead. In the following
2: pages, I will quote many examples of the above mentioned techniques and others while presenting the teaching methods of Rasulullah as compiled in the books of my of the pure Sunnah. My inspiration is solely from Allah Ta'ala, I place my trust in Him and turn to Him.
1: So as we know, uh, Shaykh Abdul Fattah rahimahullah Taala, is a very thorough person. Um, his style of writing is that he establishes a point and then presents so many examples to establish that point that the point that he is making becomes close to irrefutable. It becomes very apparent that this is what happened. So now one by one, he takes these approaches of Rasulullah and opens them. Uh, number one, ta'alimuhu bi seeratul hasana wal khuluq al The first point, he says that the Prophet's teaching method started with him embodying the knowledge that he was teaching, that it was seen. People can see what he was teaching. You didn't have to wait to hear it. That you saw Rasulullah doing what he was teaching other people. If you wanted to see Rasulullah praying salah, you would see that. If you wanted to know what the method of doing wudu was, you would go and observe Rasulullah If you wanted to learn what courage was, you would turn to Rasulullah and so on. They have a famous saying, nasa'ha bi نَفِذَتْ وَمَن نَصَحَ ضَاعَ كَلَامُهُ That the one who advises through embodiment, مَن نَصَحَ The one who advises through their presence, through their state. نَفَذَتْ His target will hit, he'll hit his target. People will see it, they'll be inspired. Those who are keen, those who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has inspired will observe it then someone's generosity, someone's kindness, someone's smile, someone's way of dress, someone's way of smile. They see all of it. Woman And on the other hand, there are those who are used to uh, just advising with words while their actions don't follow through. كلامه, his speech or her speech is being wasted. And I think this is one of the greatest problems that we face when it comes to giving advice, whether it's in the area of parenting, mentoring, educating. People talk a lot, but they don't do enough. So children are waiting for a moment to see something inspirational in their parents, but they're just waiting. That I'm not seeing anything, I'm hearing a lot of amazing things. I'm hearing great instruction, but I'm not seeing it. My parents are telling me that I should build a relationship with the Qur'an Your Quran is not a part of your life, Mama. Baba, it's not a part of your life either. I don't see you reading the Quran much. And whatever excuse you have become accustomed to giving yourself is what I am learning, and maybe for the rest of my life, I'll have as many excuses as you, if not more. That when you learn to advise with your actions, the target hits. You hit it. The arrow will reach its target. You can say all the wise things in the world. Look at look at the internet. Look at the internet. Full of wise statuses and updates. Fancy pictures, beautiful fonts, nice colors, all over WhatsApp. Every day there is a new wise statement being shared. But these wisdoms don't mean much to people. People these days, when they see these. His wise words, they just scroll past them because it's a dime a dozen now. Versus when you would have a mentor, you may not hear a wise statement from them every day, but you were seeing wisdom pouring out of that person's presence every moment. Inspiration, more inspiration, more inspiration. They saw parents who were patient. They saw parents, mentors, and teachers who didn't raise their voice who knew how to reprimand with love. For most of us, that is a barrier that can't be crossed. That what does love and reprimanding have to do? So we begin to believe that the two can't coexist and therefore anyone who reprimands us is at crossroads with us. That wasn't Rasulullah Recently, I spoke to a young lady who was telling me about her relationship with her parent. And it was so sad. It was so sad what she had to say. I was holding my tears back from her while sitting across from her. And the one statement she made, she said at the end of it, that the truth is that they're not really my relatives. After all the hurt that has been caused, after all the abandonment, after all the loneliness, after all the shouting, belittling, uh, just turning me down and trying turning me into the worst version of myself. I, requi- I I recall more shouting and anger than hugs and kisses. How can this be true? How can this be true? Rasulullah taught the Sahaba to be amazing through being amazing himself. That when someone smiles at you so much in your life and they keep embracing you and they keep... Giving you confidence and lifting you, a point comes that no matter what the situation is, their love is undeniable. No matter how much Shaitan says that person doesn't like you, you go against that westfusaf Shaitan because there are two memories to back up. Too many memories to back up love. For most of us, when we turn back to our lives, there are few moments of love. It's hard to find people who listen to you who are willing to be meaningful. Uh, uh, Companions that embrace you and help you grow. The Prophet wasallam guided the companions along the path of life by leading them through action. And when you understand this, the life of Rasulullah begins to make a lot of sense. So when an orphan met Rasulullah they understood the person that they were talking with was someone who had been orphaned because the pain that he expressed at the other person's pain was very real it wasn't dismissive bearing his own children facing hunger and starvation at every point the love that rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam offered the attention he gave was real so here he points out wa kana min ahammi wa a'dami wa abrazi asalibihi sallallahu alaihi wasallam fi al-ta'limi al-amal wa takhalluq bi sirati al-hasana wal khuluq al It was the embodiment of his knowledge that was his greatest tool. Everything else comes later, by the way. Everything else comes later. All the other methodology and all the other techniques are way later in the line. You want solid students? You want great children? You want great leaders for the future? You will need to adjust yourself. You need to be the best version of yourself. Show importance to things, so will they. Waste things in your life, so will they. In today's world, it's easy to find statements and lectures, very hard to find actions. Therefore, one of the scholars said, people assume revolutions occur through statements, through talking about it. Revolutions do not occur through just speech, because if they did, we would have a revolution every morning and evening. Revolutions occur through steadfastness, sincerity, and actions, and that's why they're so rare. They don't happen much because they require istiqama, ikhlas, and amal. Being, bring these three things together, you'll have a full revolution. Things will change. But these are not common, they're rare. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us tawfiq. فَكَانَ صلى الله عليه وسلم إذا أمر so when Rabbi Sallallahu intended to instruct the companions to do something, he would first do it himself. So the companions saw him and they knew how this thing needed to be done. What's the right way of doing it? They saw it. Like a lady or a young man says that, I saw my father, you know, mending his shoe like this. Or I saw someone in my family cook a meal like this. So they've seen it through observation and it etches into their mind that I remember this is how it's actually done. وكان خلقه هو القران فكان على... فكان على الخلق العظيم وجعل الله تعالى أُسْوَةً حَسَنًا لعباده فقال عز وجل لقد كان لكم في رسول الله اسوه حسنى. And ان الله سبحانه وتعالى tells us that the prophet was the perfect role model for the one that hopes uh, and searches for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the day of judgment and remembers Allah abundantly فَهُوَ go ahead continue
2: Continue. One of the most important, greatest, and obvious teaching methods of Rasulullah was to teach by his actions, his beautiful way of life, and his sublime character. When Rasulullah issued an order, he would first carry it out himself, and the people would therefore emulate him and execute what they had seen him perform. His character was the Qur'an. He وسلم, was thus on a very elevated pedestal of character. Allah Ta'ala made him a beautiful example for his servants. Allah Ta'ala says, There is, a, there is for you in the Messenger of Allah sallam, a beautiful example for he who hopes to meet Allah and believes in the last day and remembers Allah abundantly. The character actions and conduct of Rasulullah thus serve as examples for his followers. There is no doubt that the method of teaching by means of action and deeds is the most powerful method of all, has the greatest impact on the soul, facilitates understanding and remembering, and is most likely to be followed and emulated. As opposed to teaching via mere words and explanations, furthermore, teaching by action and deeds is the natural method of teaching, and was therefore the most apparent and striking teaching method of Rasulullah
1: Actions are the natural method of teaching. التعليم بالفعل والعمل هو الأسلوب الفطري للتعليم That teaching through textbooks and teaching through writing comes much later on. Long before paper existed, human beings were teaching one another. But they were teaching through through actions. This is the natural way for human beings to learn. Before a child can even read, before they understand what a pen or pencil is, they're already learning. They're learning through observation. You see a young girl who grabs her hijab at salah time and throws it on her head. Cute little hijab. And throws it on her head and lines up next to mama for salah. This is not something she learned in class. This three-year-old girl, this two-year-old girl, where does she learn this from? Where does she learn this from? Through someone. Someone that she saw. She saw her mama, her grandma doing this. That's how she learned it. And then you have other kids who at the age of two can mimic the exact dance moves from a particular song which is really lame by the way but with kids most things are cute so there's a group of people that are gathering around and they're applauding the child wow that's great you're doing good that snake was on point most likely they saw baba practicing so they were inspired and said you know what baba's doing the snake so i can do it too There was a I once went to a Dawat a a dinner gathering and some parents were sitting together. So the father said, uh, he called his son and said to his son, that show show Shaykh your moves. So the father put on the uh, the the sound to the back on his phone, and the kid just started breaking out moves. In my heart, I thought to myself, may Allah forgive me if my thoughts were wrong. I thought to myself that this is the power of influence only if the parent had influenced their child to the deen. It would have been so much better. I've seen that same scenario, but the father says, "Uh, Shaykh, listen to my child, read the Quran. That same scenario. But what happens there, that Surah Surah. Read some from read the Quran, uh, usually this is the point where the kids run. And if there are brothers, they say to one another, it's your turn. Adam knows what I'm talking about. Muhammad, it's your turn, I did it last time. My brother and I used to always do that to one another, Shiv Mubin and I, when the guests would come, we'd run away. We observe one another and we learn from there. What you see someone do, That's what you do. It's the earliest, the first education for a child is their home. Teachers come later, schools come later. It's in that earlier phase that uh, learning occurs through observation. And if you look outside the human beings among the animal kingdom, that's how learning occurs. It occurs through observation. This is how you hunt. This is how you jump. This is what you eat. This is what you don't eat. This is how you cross this valley, this is how you climb this mountain. It all occurs through observation because it's the most natural way for human beings to learn through observation. The beneficial thing about learning through observation is that you will most likely end up with beneficial knowledge. Random facts don't make their way into observational learning. What you see is most likely what you'll end up doing and can implement into your life. I was sharing with uh, Amin's class, I believe it was your class earlier today, that in the madrasa it was common that you would see students descending from stairs and while they were descending, if you paid attention, they were doing a dhikr. What was a dhikr? Subhanallah. And if you saw them ascending stairs, if you, if you paid a little attention, you would hear them say, Allahu Akbar. And the reason for this is because there is a riwayah that the Sahaba, they say that when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Habat al Wadi, sabbaha, that when Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam would descend, he would say Subhanallah. And when he would uh, when he would climb somewhere, he would say Allahu Akbar. Even though that is about Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam traveling through valleys, you know, on long-distance travel, but it was implemented into this day-to-day practice that we've seen teachers do this, seen teachers do this, so we just bring it into our life and at least give, have the opportunity to act upon this hadith to some degree, in some way or another. Yes, go ahead.
2: In the, in the biography of the great Sahabi, Al-Julanda anhu, the king of Roman, Hafiz ibn Hajjah, narrates in al isfah Fi Tamyeez Al-Sahaba, wadima relates in a book, Al-Ridda, on the authority of Ibn Ishaq that Rasulullah sallallahu wa sent Amr al as to give him uh, to him in order to invite him to Islam. He, he said, he informed me that this unlettered Prophet does not command any good without being the first to act on it. He does not prohibit an evil without being the first to abstain from it. When he overpowers another, he does not display pride. When he is overpowered, he does not become abusive or utter reprehensible words. He keeps his word, fulfills his promise, and I bear testimony that he is a prophet. Imam al-Shatabi said in his book, Al-I'tisam, the character of Rasulullah was an embodiment of the Quran because all his knowledge and actions were in accordance with divine revelation. He was thus consistent with divine revelation, a proponent to it, submissive to it, obedient to it, and dutiful to its commands. This special attribute of his Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was one of the greatest proofs of the truth he brought. Because when he ordered, he obeyed the order himself, and when he prohibited, he himself abstained. When he Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam admonished, he admonished, and, 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 he, and when he warned about the wrath of Allah Ta'ala, he was the first to fear. it. When he brought any hope, he was the first to be hopeful. In essence, he made the Sharia a proof and authority upon himself, and it was his guide to the straight path, which he trod.
1: So does. all the difficulties and ease that came through revelation, Rasulullah first acted upon it himself. So teaching people that this is the importance that should be given to revelation. The companions of the Prophet saw that this revelation that he's talking about all the time and is saying is so important, its importance was clear and evident because Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa made it his priority to bring into his life. I need to do amal on this every day. Yes.
2: He thus, be, he thus became.
1: Uh, and now through acting upon revelation and every day waking up for the hajjud salah Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa leading the companions in prayer. The Prophet serving the people in the community, educating people, receiving revelation, teaching that revelation, helping the needy and the poor, maintaining an eye on the markets of Medina Munawwara. After doing all of this, it became clear that he was a servant and slave of Allah. He wasn't just telling other people to be servants and slaves of Allah. He became one himself. And there is no greater title for any human being prophet or otherwise than to be a servant of Allah the truth is that every makhluk only has one true meaningful relationship with Allah and that is that we are all ibad of Allah and ima of Allah we are all slaves of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala servants of Allah now among the servants and slaves of Allah they are the righteous and then they are the sinner and then from there they are the awliya and the anbiya and the rusul and maratib exist then you have different degrees of people, but ultimately we are all servants of Allah and therefore are required to abide by revelation. So Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam acting upon wahi himself was a manifestation of this exact point. That's the point that he's making. That Allah wa refers to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as his abd, as his servant. وقال أيضاً تبارك الذي نزل الفرقان على عبده again that same word is being used to refer to Rasulullah وقال وإن كنتم في مما نزلنا على عبدنا. all of them Nabi الله is being referred to as the Abdu of Allah وما أشبه ذلك من الآيات التي وقع and there are many other examples like this in the Quran where Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has characterized Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam Ubudiyyah and the first element to Ubudiyyah, servitude to Allah Azza wa Jal, is to comply with the commands of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Therefore, living by Wahid. Okay, you can next paragraph.
2: There are many similar verses wherein Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam is praised with the attribute of being Allah's servant. If this was the case with Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Then the entire creation are also worthy of having the Sharia as an authority over them and utilizing. Now this them. becomes a clear message that if the Prophet
1: ﷺ gives such importance to revelation, what about us? What should our state be? How serious should we take this matter? That's the learning point. The learning point is Rasulullah the most beloved of Allah, used this deen to build his path. Manaran, it was his light to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So what about us? We should all be even more committed and engage at a deeper level to the best of our ability with as much as consistency as we have and sincerity that we can offer with this deen. Yes.
2: And utilizing it like a lighthouse by which they may be guided to the truth, their honor will be established in proportion to their degree of surrender and actions upon its injunctions, and by the and by way of their speech, beliefs, and deeds. Not merely on the basis of their intellect or status in the community, Allah Taala established honor only through the basis of piety. He Taala says, "Inna akramakum 'andallahi atqabu." The most honorable, the most honorable of you in the sight of Allah are those of you who are the most pious. One who follows the sharia most diligently would therefore be the most eligible for honor, whereas one who does not, uh, one who does so to a lesser extent cannot acquire, acquire the honor that the former enjoys. Honor is thus based on the extent to which a person submits to the sharia. Since this method of teaching is the most striking of his methods, sallallahu wasallam, and the one that is most used in his teachings, I will suffice by relating a few examples from his teachings which fall under this particular particular category. I can only quote a few examples as it would be impossible to cover them all. Rewind.
1: Let's read. Bismillah. Bismillah. What time is Adhan today? 58? 59? Or is it earlier? 58? We have a few minutes. Go ahead.
2: Muslim and Abu Dawood narrate on the authority of Jabir ibn Abdullah r.a. who said, Rasulullah came to us in this masjid of ours, and he had a stick from Ibn Tab.
1: Yeah. وَفِي يَدِهِ عُرْجُونِ بْنِ طَابِ عُرْجُونِ Ibn urjun As you know, is a stick. Uh, Ibn Tab was actually a person in Medina Munawwara who later on became a reference point for dates. There was a particular date that was attributed to him. So Ibn Ta'ab was not talking about the individual, it's talking about date. So from a particular date tree, Nabi Wasallam had a branch. He had some sort of a stick from that tree. مِّنْ أَهْلِ مدينة يَنْسُبُ إِلَيْهِ نَوْعٌ من تمرها. Um, Okay, so Nabi had, had a stick in his hand. Nabi saw... Um mucus. mucus. Is that the right word? Yeah. Nabi saw some mucus in the direction of the Qibla where people were praying salah. He saw some phlegm there. That's what I was thinking of. Some phlegm and mucus on the ground in the direction of the Qibla. فَحَكَّهَا بِالْعُرْجُونَ So Rasulullah scraped it off the ground using his his stick. Here comes the teaching moment. Rasulullah turned towards us اَيُّكُمْ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يُعْرِضَ اللَّهَ Which one of you wants Allah to turn away from him؟ فَخَشَعْنَا خَشَعْنَا يعني أَتَرَقْنَا بِرُؤُوسِنَا وَأَبْصَرْنَا إِلَى الْأَرْضِ When Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said this, we all just looked down. Then Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, ثم قال اَيُّكُمْ يُحِبُّ أَنْ يُعْرِضَ اللَّهَ Tell me. Who wants Allah to turn away from him? فَخَشَعْنَا فَمَّا قَالَ أَيُّكُمْ يُحِبُّ أَن يُعْرِضَ اللَّهُ عَنْهُ Which one of you wants Allah to turn away from him? as alaykum. So three times he asked this. قُلْنَا لَا أَيُّنَا يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهُ No one does. No one wants Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to turn away from him. قَالَ فَإِنَّ أَحَدَكُمْ إِذَا قَامَ يُصَلِّ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَىٰ Qibla that when one of you stands to pray, know that he is facing his Lord. Qibla wajhihi. There is a discussion among the Muhadithun. what does this mean? The easiest interpretation here, inshallah, is that that person is facing the qibla. And the qibla is his direction of worship. So he is in a special sacred place when you're worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَلَا يَبْسُقَنَّ قِبَلَ وَجْهِهِ وَلَا عَنْ يَمِينِهِ عَنْ يَسَارِهِ تَحْتَ الْيُسْرَى So when one of you is in prayer and if he, is, he has a need to discharge any phlegm or mucus, he should not spit in the direction of the qibla, neither to his right. If he must, then um, uh, underneath his left foot. So you would spit on the ground and step on there. By the way, bear in mind, this is in a time where the masajid did not have any carpet. It was soil. And if someone's, and he's not saying do this, it's the phlegm's in your mouth. You got to do something. What do you do? Swallowing it down is not a good idea. You have to discharge it. So in that moment, Rabbi صلى الله عليه is telling the companions, if you must discharge it from your mouth, then underneath your foot. That's what you do. Or Rasulullah says, uh, فَإِنْ or what he can do is spit in the corner of his garment and rub it against rub the garment against itself so the phlegm does not fall out and later on go and wash your garment. Rasulullah taught the companions this. Now, um thumma you take the garment, put it over your mouth and remove the phlegm, and then dalakahu, you rub it against itself so it sticks there. Later on you can go and wash it. Now, when you look at this uh, particular narration, one thing to point out is that Rasulullah ﷺ is reprimanding the companions because someone did something that was inappropriate for the masjid. One thing that's clear is that phlegm is not impure. If it was impure, Rasulullah ﷺ would not command for it to be put onto a garment while you're in prayer. So it's not impure. Yet Rasulullah still told the companions off for having it in the masjid. Why? Because it's Khilaf al-Adab. This is a place of worship. You don't mess up the masjid. You keep it clean. You go above and beyond. There is a riwayah actually that Rasulullah actually said when Nabi told the companions to not bring children to the masjid. Similarly, Nabi sallam said do not bring a person who is insane to the masjid. Now some people translate this and they implemented that no kids are allowed in the masjid period. While many of the muhadithun and fuqahah say this is in a situation where the child will carelessly spread impurity. Bear in mind in a context where diapers weren't really a thing and a baby is a baby, they don't take permission before relieving themselves. So it's going to cause impurity in the masjid. So Rasulullah is telling the parents that before your child is able to control their bowels, let them pray at home. Or if you're going to bring them to the masjid, give extra attention. Similar thing with the majnoon. That why is Nabi Wasallam saying not to bring a majnoon to the masjid? Because of the same tahara issue. It's a purity issue. That when you have some sort of safety, now if a person has loose bowels and they come to the masjid and they ensure that they are wearing some sort of protection that prevents the masjid from uh, becoming filthy in any way at all, Now, why this is important is because there are scenarios where a person is not able to access the masjid, not because they have something wrong, but because there is an impurity that will spread in the masjid that will defile the sanctity of the masjid in that moment. That does not make that human being any worse. It does not make that human being a bad human being. It doesn't mean the sharia is discriminating against that person. Rather, sharia is upholding the sanctity of the place, and those people now need to be given an opportunity to be educated where education is necessary, outside of the masjid. That a venue needs to be held. Someone may feel discriminated by this, but in reality there's no discrimination here. You are maintaining the sanctity of the masjid, yet at the same time, giving people the opportunity to learn the deen in a way that is accommodating, right? This is the teaching of Rasulullah. and Sheikh Abdul al Abu bghada rahimahullah ta'ala he says here he brought up a ma- he actually mentions this issue um it's a longer passage in the mayasul hadal fa'lu fi athra'is salat wa fi dakhil al masjid idha thurra ilayhi al musalli basically he's talking about spitting in the masjid right that if you know if there is a need that possibility is there what kind of? because people they say the nabi sallallahu alaihi wasallam gave permission to spit in the masjid well, this is not the truth. Nabi wa sallam did not give permission. This is in a case where what are you going to do? It's in your mouth. You have to do something with this phlegm. What are you going to do? So, Rasulullah sallallahu wa is teaching the companions how to discharge it. المسجد... أو 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 sallallahu wa and that's how the masajid were in those times. The masajid were not built on solid carpet, there was soil and, and other uh, raw materials on the ground. As for the masajid that we have today, where there are carpets and there are you know finer materials used in the construction of the masajid. It is no longer a permission for you. You no longer have permission to spit on the ground because you are causing harm to the property of the masjid. It's no longer raw material where you just take the soil and bury it or spill water over it. These these uh, the, these these facilities need to be maintained at the end of the day. This is the house of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. كل, كل أو 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 and it is the responsibility of the Muslims to ensure that at every cost, no impurity makes its way into the masjid. We saw this in our mashayikh and teachers that when they would come to the masajid, they would clean the masjid up. If they saw any impurity on the ground, they would pick it up. If they saw anything filthy, they would clean it themselves. And Rasulullah ﷺ in one riwayah actually mentioned that the one who uh, cleans the impurity of the masjid in return, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bless them with a beautiful companion in Jannah. Right, it's such a big reward. If I'm correct, this narration you can find in the sunat of Imam Ibn Majah. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward us. I'm going to conclude today's session. We'll read this riwayah. Um, um, the last part of the riwayah, by the way, is that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa then sent a young companion to go and bring some fragrance. And then he took the fragrance and placed it on the ground where the impurity was. So right here we see Rasulullah ﷺ educated the companions through repeating his speech multiple times. Similarly, Nabi Sallallahu Alaihi led through actions, Rasulullah's humbleness that he did it himself rather than telling someone else he cleaned it because there's ajr there. Similarly, Rasulullah ﷺ reprimanded them with his words and also used physically himself to fix the affair bil right? yad. When there is opportunity, you fix the affair with your own doing. Um, and there are other issues here too. The last thing is the uh, there's a beautiful story that Hafidh ibn Hajj al-Asqalani rahimahullah ta'ala narrates in the introduction of his commentary on Sahih al-Bukhari. In his Muqaddimah on Sahih al-Bukhari he mentions this beautiful incident fi khilali tarjumati Imam Bukhari. Qala rahimahullah ta'ala qala Muhammad ibn Mansur that Muhammad ibn Mansur says fi majlisi Abi Abdullah al-Bukhari that we were once in the gathering of Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi. فرفع إنسان قذاة من لحيةه وطرحها إلى الأرض. إيوه. Some guy he pulled out something from his beard and flitted into the masjid. فرفع إنسان قذاة من لحيةه وطرحها إلى الأرض. He took some impurity out of his beard and it into the masjid. فرأيت الْبُخَارِيَ ينظر إليها وإلى الناس. فلما غفل الناس رأيته مد يده. فَرَفَعَ القضاءة مِنَ الْأَرْضِ فَأَدْخَلَهَا فِي كُمِّهِ فَلَمَّا خَرَجَ مِنَ الْمَسْجِدِ رَعِيْتُهُ أَخْرَجَهَا وَطَرَحَهَا عَلَى الْأَرْضِ So Imam Bukhari, he kept his eye on that impurity and when people were no longer looking, he picked it up and placed it in his sleeve and then went outside the masjid and threw it away. On this note, our sheikh used to say to us that those who take care of the masjid those who clean the masjid and take care of the finances of the masjid, take care of the affairs of the masjid. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will take care of their affairs, their finances, because the one who takes care of the house of Allah, Allah will take care of their house too. alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.